Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. A repeat guest is here today. Dan Lawrence is co-founder and CEO of ChainGuard. Dan, the last time we spoke, you and a bunch of your ex-Google colleagues had just left, raised $5 million in funding and was tackling supply chain security. Uh, I want to say that was, what, eight months ago, nine months ago? It could have been longer. I'm not sure. Time's flown, but happy to be back. Time's flown and a Time has flown on a lot of change yeah. with ChangeGuard. So let's catch up. What is ChangeGuard doing today? Sure. So ChangeGuard is just over two years old today. We started the company in October of 2021, uh, setting out to solve pl- problems in the supply chain security space. Turns out there are a lot of problems in that space. Um, in those two years, we did a bunch of discovery, figured out where we wanted to start, and and found a couple problems that we're solving really, really, really well. And so... Uh, we're taking off that way. Um, our products are selling, we're building out our go-to-market, uh, our customers are happy, so we're, we're hitting the gas. And I see a lot has changed since then. I mentioned, I, I, I wrote about your seed funding yeah. round at $5 million. Since then, you've raised a $50 million round and a $61 million round, I want to guess. Yeah. So you've raised a total of $116 million. You're no longer a tiny startup. You're now a big security company in growth mode. How do you, like, where are you? Where, Help me understand like this this party in the first time we met and now being what eight nine months ago. Yeah, a lot has changed. Um, the company is about ninety people today. I think we just passed ninety. Um, you know, we started with you know four or five engineers, like like we talked about when the company first got going. Uh, now we have a huge sales organization. We have a, a marketing organization. Um, you know, we're, yeah, I, I wouldn't say we're a big company, but we're a real company now. What does that mean? What does that real company mean? I mean, yeah. and 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 on a more, more on a more serious note, like why raise all this money? You, you usually in, yeah. in in VC land and in 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 the, the playbook is you raise for three years, you kind of manage growth, and like there's all kinds of different approaches to it. What is what is this? You you've decided to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. I imagine you might be one of those companies that they call unicorns today. Yeah. Why? We're not quite there yet. Uh, the unicorn thing, but um, yeah it. Raising money, is, it's for a purpose, right? And when we, when we started the company, we had that $5 million seed. Um, that was to get going to figure out what we wanted to do. That was the also kind of like the peak of the market when we started this company. So that was October of 2021. Um, we just had a company summit and I was looking back through timelines and history and you know what happened uh, then. A lot's changed for us. A lot's changed for the overall market. October 21, um, WeWork stock was at an all-time high. Um, you know, that we're, we're filming this and, you know, beginning of November when we work just went bankrupt, um, you know, it's the, not to pick on them specifically, but the overall market has changed dramatically in that amount of time. So that's just kind of like one little factoid to, um, you know, bookend the, the overall shift in the market. Um, our series a was done right before the market kind of crashed. So may of the following year, I think we probably talked, uh, sometime around then, uh, but that was perfect timing that was done you know, right before the market crashed that let us accelerate growth while not having to worry about the macro climate for a while. Uh, and we've seen buying signals return. So that's kind of the big shift, um, especially in this space, overall budgets got slashed overall, you know, through most of the industry security is always a little bit more resilient. You can't just cut spend on security. And we're seinging a lot of that in the news too, with uh, the solar winds case recently. But security did get hit. Um, layoffs hit everybody across the industry. But uh, buying is starting to pick up again, and especially in the supply chain security space, which is pretty new overall. Buying is starting for the first time, really. So you're saying CISOs are starting to add supply chain line items into their budget as something that's new post-COVID? Post- you're starting to see an actual... Yeah, yeah in 2022... 
everyone was talking about the space, right? It was huge in the news from the original SolarWinds breach from the executive order. Uh, 2022, there was a lot of awareness, but not much action. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, because the space was still early. Uh, two, because there were no budgets. Uh, the economy had just crashed. Um, and three, because the executive order hadn't quite gotten its teeth yet, right? Everyone knew this was coming, uh, but it wasn't quite there yet. The regulations weren't staring people down. Um, they were years away, not quarters away. It's a longer time scale, uh, unfortunately, than a lot of people think on in this industry. Uh, so because of all of that, because we found a product that solves a real problem for people, simplifies their lives, saves them time, sales have started to accelerate. And now's the time to invest in growing that go-to-market out for us. So you're officially in this this so-called mm-hmm. growth mode. Uh, what is this? Yeah. I mean, you're a first-time entrepreneur, so yeah. this is all cool. fascinating to me to watch you grow the company from scratch to where it is today. And I'm curious how how you kind of manage realistically building a company methodically mm-hmm. the way it has to be done slowly and, you know, getting everything right, getting hiring right, getting all the pieces together right. Mm-hmm. And deal with the challenges and mm-hmm. pressures from VCs who have now made this big investment and made mm-hmm. a big bet on you. And obviously their timeline for returns mm-hmm. might be different from you. Like, how do you mm-hmm. navigate that world as an entrepreneur, pure to the research mm-hmm. and pure to the technology? And now you quote unquote priorities mm-hmm. become go to market. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about managing? Yeah. That? Yeah. I'm sure some of our team's going to listen to this. So I'm not going to pretend we've done all of this perfectly. They'll start laughing and throwing things later. Uh, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, I think, you know, the biggest one is you know, product market fit. When you find it, you know about it. Um, and you, you, you hear that a million times and I heard that a million times too, but, um, it's when you can't keep up with the demand really. And you, like, you know, there's all those sayings, you know, it, it feels like a slap in the face, something like that. Uh, but you know it when you see it. Um, and that's, you know, what we started to feel earlier this year. I'm um, not being able to keep up with demand for our product. Um, people buying it in spite of all of the problems it had, right? You know, that's, it feels rough. It feels broken when you're delivering something like that, but it's a huge, great sign when people are willing to spend tons of money on a product that uh, isn't ready yet. It means there's a huge unmet need there. Um, And so those are great problems to have as a startup. The worst problem you can have is nobody caring about your product, even if it's perfectly polished. So much rather be on this side of it. Right. But I mean, just coming back to the original question, which, which is, you know, how do you make sure you're doing right by the product? And not necessarily ignoring these sometimes unrealistic demands from uh, uh, yeah. your investors and so on. Is that Do you find that a challenge or are they leaving you alone to just do anything? Or, or are you in this sweet spot now where things are just humming along so nicely that you're not, you don't have these kinds of problems? I think VCs get a bad rap overall, right, in the industry. Um, For good yeah. reason, though. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. Yeah, some of them. Um, you know, we, we have great investors. Um, spent a long time getting to know the folks that we work with um, across the board. They understand the vision. Um, they understand what we're doing. They help out. You know, they press, they put pressure on us. They push us in the right way. It, it's a good, it's a healthy relationship, I think, that we have. Uh, but that's probably not true across the board. That's because, of the, you know, the exact investors that we have around the table. And you mentioned finding traction for a product that you can't sell fast enough. This product is Chain Guard Images. Yeah. What is Chain Guard Images? Help me understand sure. what exactly you're doing now, because this is a pivot for you guys, right? Yeah, somewhat. Um, you know, we tried a bunch of different things. We were tr- like in parallel. We were experimenting, trying to see what resonated. We know there's a whole bunch of problems in the supply chain security space. What we didn't know is which one would resonate first and which one people would be willing to spend money on first. Um, so not so much as a Pivot is a, a refocus, you know, because we've been doing this for a little over a year and a half. This is just the one that took off. So it's kind of an exercise of pouring as many resources into it as we can. Yeah, what we've really aligned around here is, you know, we're trying to build and become the safe source for open source. Um, and so our images product is one way to package that up. Um, you know, when someone starts building an enterprise application at any company in the world today, they're starting on top of 
thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of lines of open source code before they even write the first Hello World line in their application. Open source has been around for decades, but you know the ubiquity has really just gotten there inside of the enterprise in probably the last five to 10 years. Uh, securing that is completely different from securing your first party code. Open source code is great by every metric. It's more secure than proprietary code. You know, everything is, is awesome about it, but the more code you pull in, the more vulnerabilities there are going to be. That's just a fact of life. All code has bugs. Some of those bugs are security vulnerabilities. Um, and also attackers are starting to look at open source and take over open source projects and slip in malware that way. Uh, and so it's created this problem where open source is produced in the open on GitHub. The way it gets consumed inside of enterprises is completely different. And it's created this large gap that folks have to deal with today. Um, and so that's what we're providing. Our ChainGuard Images product is a set of packaged container images. That's kind of the de facto way to run software in the cloud today. You put it into these things called container images. Uh, but those images that we sell are uh, productized, supported, production-grade, enterprise-grade, open-source packages for the most part that we provide SLAs around for patching vulnerabilities, uh, all sorts of other compliance features to, so folks know where they got it from and how we built it. You guys are promising uh, customers reaching inbox zero for CVEs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you tell me what that means? And, and in, 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 a, in the purest yeah. sense, like what, what exactly, what value do you bring? What, what, what value do you bring and how do you get to inbox zero for CVEs when that whole CV ecosystem is a mangled yeah. mess? Yeah, the ecosystem is terrible. Um, and that's where the opportunity comes in. Um, if you take the standard, let's say Node.js, um, it's the number one enterprise uh, programming language in containers. I just saw a stat from the Datadog report last week. Kind of surprised me. I thought Java or something else would be up there. But Node.js is the number one programming framework for containers in the cloud today. If you start with the Node.js Docker image on Docker Hub, the default one everyone grabs, and you run a scan on it, and this is the most up-to-date one you can get, you'll find somewhere between 800 and 1,200 CVEs before you even start writing your code. That's just in the Node.js runtime before you put your code on top of it. CVEs are vulnerabilities basically tracked by the National Vulnerability Database, which is run by the US government. Now, most of those are not real. Those CVEs, they're in parts of the code you're not gonna load. There's bugs in the scanners. There's extra stuff thrown in that you might need even if you don't need it. Um, I've seen a bunch of stats. Other vendors are kind of claiming, oh, don't worry about all those CVEs. Only four or 5% matter. Um, that four or five percent would be it's true. Yeah, then. it's true. But that four, it's not very comforting when there's twelve hundred of them, right? Four or five percent of twelve hundred is still a decent sized number, um, and uh, it's still twelve hundred that you have to sift through to find those four or five percent that matter. Yeah, what we do is uh, the hard work. Um, there's no magic, right? We we build smaller versions of these images where everything is built from source. We strip out the parts that you don't need. We put it back in if you need it. So we're starting from the opposite approach. You've seen CISA's you know, secure by design. Um, that's what we're doing. Um, we're doing all of this the right way. If you need an extra feature, you can have that added, but we don't start with it there by default. So it's reducing bloat, which trims down a lot of the noise. Uh, we also do a bunch of hard work to actually annotate all of the noise uh, in a correct way to integrate with scanners. So a scanner might look at this image. We say we reviewed this vulnerability and it doesn't apply here for XYZ reasons, and they trust us because we do this correctly. That gets rid of another class of them. And then we just fix the rest. And everybody says, how can you possibly scale this? And it's it's hard work. You can just watch it happen on GitHub. We, we remove stuff, we update databases, and we fix things. And at the end of the day, we get it down to zero. Um, or if there is something in there, it means it's real and we're working on it right now. Uh, so the idea is just reducing attack surface from this container ecosystem. That's a big chunk. Yeah, reducing attack surface, but then fixing what's left, right? That that only gets you part of the way. And so we, we patch 
open source projects, we apply releases, we bump dependencies. Um, we're carrying a lot of patches today that we try to submit upstream, uh, but there's delays in that whole ecosystem. Just because something is available and say open SSL, it might be weeks or months before it makes it down into your project or the way that you're consuming it. Um, and so, yeah, there's reducing attack surface, but then also kind of vertical integration of the entire supply chain for you. So when a patch comes out, we get it to you today instead of taking weeks or months. You've been you've been blogging and yeah. writing a bunch of LinkedIn posts on the chaos and, and mangled state of the CVE mm-hmm. ecosystem. And you mentioned um, NIST and so on and, and the NVD. Like, is that a fixable issue? Is that a tractable issue? And, and, and if this is if this is such a, an issue, why, why aren't more people paying attention to this? Why are we just accepting mm-hmm. that this just this CVE? I, you know, I track CVEs for mm-hmm. some of the journalism work I do. It's a yeah. disaster, even for someone like me. And I'm not really mm-hmm. relying on it to secure things. I'm relying on it to just understand risk and understand exposure. Mm-hmm. If, if, you, if I give you a magic one and say, hey, go fix our vulnerability reporting system, including databases and classifications and so on. What is the priority? What should we be doing? Yeah, there's a few issues with it. And it's not, they're not all technical, right? Some of them are social. Some of them are, I don't want to say cultural, but some of them are just the way that the systems are all set up in place today. Um, the world wants a central source of vulnerability information. Um, that's the NVD. That's the role the NVD has played. Uh, but it's run by the government and the government's scaling strategy here hasn't been to staff it more or increase the budget or anything. It's been to federate it. And so you don't actually have a single national vulnerability database. I mean, you you kind of do all the, all the things end up making it in there, but it's not all curated by one entity. Different people can apply to get this status called a CNA where they get to issue CVEs for different chunks of their software. And so yeah, a lot of, and a lot of affected vendors are their own CNAs yeah. and issuing their CVEs. I mean, it's that's massive conflict of, like, of interest. Scales, right. right. Um, and all of this and, so it means there's no standard quality bar across those CNAs, but everything makes it into that same database in the end, and it gets relied on the same way. Just this September, a disclaimer got added. I don't know what was, what was there before, but there's a big warning that says this is new. Um, just this September in the NVD, there's a new disclaimer that says you can't rely on that data for um, production reasons. Um, they make no guarantees to the accuracy of the data that's in the National Vulnerability Database. Which is the truth. It's the truth. It's fine. Except then you have, it's like this left hand not talking to the right hand situation uh, where there's other agencies in the government that mandate people take action based on that data. And so it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. Everyone knows it's not perfect, but it doesn't even have a stated goal of being accurate. Uh, And then you have these other government agencies that say you have to fix everything that's found in that database. Yeah, by a certain date, yeah. right? Like, like this cav list comes up and it's, it's based on that database that is crap. Yeah, right? and so people kind of built this whole ecosystem of policies and regulations and compliance frameworks that require you to take action based on this crappy data. Uh, so the easiest fix that most people do is say, all right, well, we're, we'll just review it and apply our own context and mark things as won't fix if we don't want to fix them. And that works for most companies, unless you get into regulated industries where you say, whoa, 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 you can't just be your own auditor in that case. You know, you're, if you're, you know, these you know, big uh, Microsofts of the world and folks that, uh, you know, just want to mark these things off, then you're just going to do that. If there's 1200 CVEs, you're just going to click drag, not affected in the spreadsheet and call it a day. And you're going to miss those four or five that do actually matter. And so in regulated safety critical industries, you're left in this gap where vendors, you don't just trust a vendor to mark things that's fixed or not affected themselves because they have every incentive to skip steps, cheat, take it easy. And then um, you have this database that's just completely inaccurate and somebody has to be doing that. But it's not clear who should be in this trust model. There's no kind of third party ecosystem of just curating that data. That's really the role that somebody at the NVD should play. Um, you know, the numbers aren't terrible. Like people think this is some problem that can't scale. 
there aren't that many CVs that get filed every day. It's like in the hundreds. Um, you could staff a team of like 10 or 20 people and have them actually just review and update the data on every one of these. It's not thousands. You don't need AI. We don't need ChatGPT to come in here and fix this for us. We don't need a cyber, <laughs> global cyber AI shield that Microsoft no. <laughs> is building and promising. Yeah, if you had a team of like 20 experts, which the government should be able to afford easily, um, then we wouldn't need any of this. But instead, pretty much every company out there has a team of 20 people reviewing the same vulnerabilities and taking action based on it. Yeah, but you're, you're suggesting this is a money and people problem that could be fixed with the snap of a finger? Yes, that's exactly it. How? 20 people reviewing every CV and updating the data and marking them as crap if they're crap. You think you, you, that's the extent of the problem we're facing? That would solve almost all of it, yeah. Um, it has to be by the government or it has to be by some independent group. You can't let every company do this themselves because of the conflict of interest problems. But yeah, 20 people would be able to do this today with the volume that we have. One of the things that's bubbling up in my threat intelligence, mm -hmm. threat hunting circles, is the fact that a lot of this data, vulnerability data and databases have become balkanized, mm -hmm. meaning yeah. they've become very, they've become national security. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, mm -hmm. I don't want to, yeah. what would I describe it? China has yes. their own, Russia has their own, we have our own. Yeah. It's the same vulnerabilities in the same product though. How do you think that affects our ability to even try to track things when, you know, everyone is... Yeah. Managing it differently. Yeah, it is starting to be become even more federated at that level. Um, Europe is proposing their own European vulnerability database. It's kind of just this wart on the they industry. They should though, right? I, I don't know. It's the same data in the end, right? So it's... Right, but why cede the management of that right. to an external third-party government agency that clearly has already screwed it yeah, up, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of just this wart on the industry that it happened to be stood up by the US in, in the beginning. And it's all public data, so it hasn't really caused a problem yet. But Europe wants their own now. Uh, as we saw with Log4Shell, um, that was reported uh, by a Chinese company, if I remember correctly. And mm -hmm. China changed the regulations after to forbid researchers in China from publicly disclosing these things without going to the Chinese government first. So you're sure they have their own private data set? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's at the end of the day, all this stuff is going to be made public. It all tends toward that eventually. So I don't know how much this matters. You know, we're going to have 10 of these databases that maybe have advanced notice on a couple here and there, but all of it comes to the light eventually. And they're all going to, it'll be eventually consistent databases with different fields and different schemas and maybe off by one errors here or there. So I don't think it's going to be that terrible for the industry in the long run. Um, the timescales for getting stuff into the NVD already take weeks or months. So if you add another week or two here or there on either side, I don't think it'll ruin anything. So you think this again, just to re just to repeat, you think this is fixable with some money and some and the right people think, on, with the will. I think yeah, of oh, someone to go fix yeah. It. Um, I don't think it's a technical problem. I'll say right. I think technically mm -hmm. we could solve this with twenty people. I think it's a political problem of who's going to decide which twenty people, where are they going to live, who's going to pay them, right? Especially with these interests from governments and everything. That's that's what's complicating this. It's not a, a technical problem or a scale problem. And let me ask you this, who's going to fix the CVSS issue now? Because that's also a big part of this ecosystem is defenders relying on yeah. severity scoring and the severity scoring system mm -hmm. to determine risk and to determine their exposure to risk. Microsoft has basically gutted yeah. their bulletins uh, yeah. ridiculously now with the reliance on CVSS scoring. First of yeah. all, let me just, let me, let me, let me, let me level set. What do you make of CVSS as a system? Yeah, it's a number. People want a number. When you have 10,000 of these, you got to sort them by something. Um, it's not perfect. It goes from zero to 10. People want some number there. And there's a bunch of different formulas to come up with that number. But at the end of the day, you need some number. 
there's a new version of CVSS that just came out, CVSS four. This is the fourth version. You know, I think it's slightly different algorithm that weights things differently and should produce better results. Uh, the problem isn't really with CVSS. There are some different methods people talk about, like EPSS and stakeholder specific vulnerability classification, something like that. I always forget how to pronounce that one. But uh, the problem is that the NVD folks are just not not even trying to assign these scores correctly. Um, Daniel Stenberg, the curl maintainer, um, and there's a whole there's a whole separate set of issues that apply to CVEs and open source code. I think that makes it a little bit different. But he's the maintainer of curl, the most commonly used library for you know, speaking internet protocols out there, and he gets garbage CVEs reported all the time for his library. The and they always get way overscored. Um, so stuff that he doesn't even consider a bug gets scored a 9.8 out of 10. The official response he got recently, you could find this on his blog to put in the show notes or something from the NVD about why they were massively overrating everything here. So they said it was out of an abundance of caution. If they couldn't prove that something wasn't, say, remotely exploitable, then they just assumed it was. And so you get these CVE entries that's like a sentence and a half written by some AI bot. And we've seen a couple of these recently where they just don't even fill out all the fields in the application. And instead of rejecting it or sending it back, they're so terrified of underrating something that they just assign it the max possible score everywhere. And so you can see these groupings if you look at the statistical analysis of what scores there are. And there's this huge jump at 9.8 on the score, which is just what it comes down to if they set all of the fields to the maximum by default. So if these reporters don't actually fill out the form correctly, it gets set to maximum severity, which fires off everyone's scanners and annoys everyone and wastes way more than 20 people's time across the overall industry. Is that a needle in the haystack problem or is that a significant problem? It happens a lot. Meaning? we could pull up the numbers. I don't have them off the top of my head, but like look up any of these open source CVs and they all start out at 9.8 unless somebody goes and complains to get it downgraded. Um, and so that's where some of the incentive problem comes in with open source, where you get somebody that's not even paid to do this as part of their job, has to go fill out another form, talk to the government to get the score changed to something lower. Yeah. How do we fix this? It's, it's, it's incentives and politics and systems. It's not a technical problem. So that's why it's not quite as easy as uh, writing some code. Why, why isn't it more, why isn't there more noise about this? There's plenty of noise inside companies. There's plenty of noise inside every regulated company that has to deal with all of this. And it's, it's getting worse recently, especially like, uh, with the trends around AI reporting CVs, the ecosystem has shifted a lot too. like getting a CVE used to be something people put on their resumes and they were proud of, uh, which then led to people just filing garbage CVs to put them on their resumes so they could go get jobs, which then has the downstream impact of clogging the system. Um, it's basically turned into a denial of service on vulnerability management teams. And if they and if it works and they do get jobs, it means like yeah. we have a personal problem with the wrong yeah. people in the wrong place <laughs> as well. Uh, I want to switch gears and ask about the Cyber Resilience Act and its effect on open source. Uh, this Cyber Resilience Act is this European Union. They're going through their approvals process for it. And there's a part of it there that puts an emphasis and an onus on uh, open source maintainer to be responsible. Um, uh, the liability gets shifted onto the, the, the coder in the first place. Mm-hmm. I've heard this described as Europe banning open source. Is that a ridiculous take? Not really. Um it's a strange law that doesn't really make any sense and it's passing it's not, a law yet, not right? yet just not, just to clarify right yeah it, it's making its way through the stages um people are still complaining about it writing position papers there's there's a lot in there uh, one of the main shifts it makes though is the supplier of software is liable for security impact from it at first glance that roughly sounds correct why is that um, a bad thing? yeah first glance that sounds correct 
uh, until you consider open source, where if somebody just publishes software on the internet, um, it's usually published under an open source license, which has something in there. Uh, almost every open source license has this written there first. This is this comes with no warranty or liability even for fitness or purpose, something like that, uh, which means it, it's published there. If you find it and use it, the person that put it there said, you can't come back and complain to me. Uh, and that's what enables the whole open source ecosystem to work. Just because I put it on the Internet, if you put it inside some robot that spins an arm around and kills someone, like that's not my fault. That's your fault for taking it and putting it inside of that robot. That's where everyone has agreed to put that division of labor. There are other types of contracts and licenses you can get where you can go find someone and pay them money and say, hey, I would like you to, you to carry that liability. And you say, all right, what are you going to use this for? Oh, you're going to put this in a nuclear plant. Like, I'm probably going to charge a lot more money for that liability than I am for somebody that's going to run a hobby website. We already have contracting mechanisms in place for liability. Uh, what this is doing is kind of cutting those out and shifting it to the suppliers of software without having those contracting mechanisms in place. And to be fair, uh, it does exclude software that is produced without any commercial activity. So if you're an independent hobbyist just putting code on the internet, doing nothing commercial with it, it doesn't apply, doesn't apply to you. But the vast majority of open source is not that. And it doesn't make the distinction between commercial activity associated with producing it and commercial activity associated with that group in Europe using that software. So if I produce some open source and sell it to you here in the US, we work something out, we're all happy, I'm good. Somebody in Europe takes it for free, gets hacked. Now they can still come see me because there was commercial activity associated with that open source, even though it wasn't in that specific contracting arrangement. So it's pretty subtle, but it's going to dramatically change the way open source gets used in Europe and pass a lot more burden on the people that are producing open source, uh, even if it's not in a commercial relationship in Europe. So people joke about, like, is this banning open source? I don't think Europe would be the one banning open source. I think it would be groups like GitHub and other aggregators that have to think long and hard about whether they're going to keep supporting Europe if something like this happens. Then do you think, well, how do, how do you, what do you think happens? What happens next? Let's say this, this yeah. law pauses, passes as is. What's the downstream effect? We've seen Europe do stuff like this in the past where, you know, it goes to the parliament, but then it's up to every member state to figure out exactly how they want to implement it and work it out. And, uh, you know, it's years before anything is really going to get tested. Um, just like we've seen with GDPR, where, you know, one judge in Spain uh, makes a ruling on a case that then kind of sets a precedent for all of it. I personally, like, I don't know how open source will continue to work. And the main open source standards bodies and groups and foundations are all saying the same exact thing in Europe, just isn't listening to it. So I, my brain. Why aren't can't... they listening to it? Why aren't they listening to it? Is it because there's a desperate need to hold vendors accountable and to hold software? I mean, there is a desperate need for this. I mean, how do you balance but that's that the, need versus... Yeah, but that's the V word, you know, the vendor word. Um, holding vendors accountable makes sense. Holding volunteers accountable uh, doesn't make sense, right? They're volunteers. They're doing this for free. They're contributing to this digital public commons. How do you hold them accountable when you've given them nothing in return? Um, it's kind of the basics of contracting law. You need quid pro quo. You need to give something in return for consideration. Making accountability and liability work when there's no contract set up is just boggling. It doesn't really make any sense. Why isn't this a bigger story as well? Uh, just like vulnerability management is a DOS attack on you know companies having to deal with vulnerabilities. I almost feel like, like some of the regulations coming out of Europe are a DOS attack on uh, lobbying groups and what people can pay attention to. There's just so much happening. This one's getting a lot of attention. Every open source foundation I've seen has written statements about it. They're all pushing back. 
a lot of the companies are too, but at the same time, these companies are battling with Europe on a hundred different fronts. And so instead of, you know, seeing Google and Microsoft and Amazon publishing position statements, they're going through groups like the Linux Foundation and the Python Software Foundation, because in reality, if you see these big companies pushing back on it, um, it immediately gets disregarded as, uh, oh, that's just big tech. If they say it's bad, it must be good, actually. Um, and so it's one of those cases where it's, it's hard to, yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's hard. Um, and I think that's why it's uh, been taking this long. You mentioned the chain guard images product being spearheaded by this idea of secure by design, secure by default. Uh, the U.S. government is trying to define that. And the lobbyists, mm-hmm. on the other hand, is trying to define that. And you start to see Microsoft putting out their position statements and everyone kind of preempting what that will look like. The dynamic so- secure life cycle or something like that. Oh, What's it called? It. Make it stop, please. Just make it stop, please. My head is exploding. But in all seriousness, um, how how do you define secure by define uh, secure by design, secure by default? Is there like a is there is there something you can you know get five lists of things and check a box? I mean, it's hard because security standards increase over time. But you know, there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. One is the old world, right? You get a piece of software, it would come in a certain configuration, and then you go read the hardening guide, which tells you how to change all the settings to make it secure. Right? That's the anti-pattern, right? Uh, where, where at all possible, it should be secure by default and the security settings should be enabled and you have to turn them off uh, instead of turning them on. And the challenge there is a usability one, right? Nobody likes having right, to, it doesn't, right, it doesn't work or you have to think through things in the beginning. But the downside is uh, no one ever changes the defaults. We always see this. And so if the defaults are bad and no one ever changes the defaults and you're a vendor and everyone knows no one ever changes those defaults, you should probably bear some of that burden of leaving those defaults that way. The default password is admin123, and you know half of your users are never going to go change those defaults. Some of that's got to be on you at some point. And so shifting that burden over, um, I think, helps. And the main reason I like having the policy system step in to push on this is because sales and usability, it's always a race to the bottom. And if one vendor jumps out with a secure by default product that is, in effect, harder to use, everyone else has the opportunity uh, to outcompete them by saying, oh, ours is easier to use. And that always wins in the short term. By applying this to the whole industry, you can kind of short circuit that and remove that ability for arbitrage on trading off security for usability. If everyone has to do it and everyone has to change those default passwords, then you can't go lose to somebody else that is selling a less secure product that happens to be more usable. Are you a fan of government taking the lead on this? I feel like there's, I feel like this is the only option we have at this stage. Yeah, I think certain cases like this where you know it's a negative externality thrown on the entire industry and society. You know, we're getting a little bit philosophical at this point about what is the role of government in general. Uh, but for cases like this, where yes, yeah, security, lack of security, as a negative externality for the whole world, right? You can lose your data leak in a system that you never even knew your data was inside of because it's been bought and sold and moved around so many different times. Uh, and then the market dynamics just aren't working. I think that is the role of the government. People are always going to undercut each other, sell something for cheaper, cut corners on security. And that's where uh, policy has to step in. The challenge is that they have to do it right. Yeah. Are we ever going to get there, though, when, when secure by design, secure by default might actually affect bottom line and profitability? And how, how do we get there when the same companies mm-hmm. that, we, that, that we're pushing mm-hmm. to be secure by design and secure by default are actually vendors and yeah. security vendors themselves who are making billions of dollars out of this entire security mm-hmm. ecosystem? That It just feels like... My good friend, Jim Higgins, um, he's a CISO at Snapchat now. Uh, he had a great saying, um, <laughs> lawyers, guns, and money. Those are the way to get things to change, right? Um, we talked about the CRA and changing the way liability works for software in Europe. The U.S. actually has a much uh, 
saner stance, I would say, on that, which I think it's a lot of the way there on changing incentives. The so oh, that was what I was going to ask. Like, how do we handle that yeah. specific? Yeah, right now, not much, but this is a huge element in the White House cybersecurity strategy, um, which was rolled out earlier this year and has a bunch more timelines coming up next year. But one of the major elements is software liability reform. Whenever you buy a piece of software, you know, there's that click wrap thing where you re- scroll down, don't really read the EULA, click terms accept, of service, yeah. click accept. Uh, and usually in there, it says if there's a data breach, you can't sue the vendor um, or maybe forced arbitrage or something like that. And unless you're doing enterprise procurement and negotiating those terms, you're just clicking through on every one of those. So that's why when a vendor loses your social security number, you might get like a 17 cent check in the mail six years later and free identity protection instead of, you know, real penalties. Because you, you waive those rights, you waive those rights at contract time. And we're all consenting adults, and today those are rights that you can waive, and nobody really negotiates those, so you do that. This liability reform will be massive if it rolls out, but the idea is to make that cause unenforceable. Um, so you can no longer waive liability um, in software contracts. On the flip side, because that would just be massively devastating to the entire industry. On the flip side, they're coupling that with the safe harbor provision is the idea, where NIST has set cybersecurity standards. um, And if you meet those cybersecurity standards, uh, then you do get back that liability protection in the event of a breach. So if you check all of your I's, dot your T's, whatever the saying is, um, and you still get breached, that's going to happen, right? That's how security works. This is an adversarial game. It's asymmetrical. Nation states are going to get in at some point if they try hard enough. There's no such thing as perfect. Uh, but if you met the industry best practices um, and you weren't negligent, I think that's kind of the key word, the, the negligent word, um, then yeah, sure, you get the liability protection. But if you were negligent, class action lawsuits, liability through the roof, uh, this is how you change uh, the shape of the game and you get even public companies to care about this because now you have a material risk to the business. Uh, and, and you're a big fan of that cybersecurity strategy? Or you, yeah. you view that as a solid document that's mostly heading in the right direction? Yeah, the only criticism I have is it's just a document, right? It's a strategy. Um, it's got to get rolled out and it, they're working on it, but it's not a law at this point, just like the CRA isn't. It's not binding, but um, the ideas outlined are great. I, I don't think like we can get through an entire podcast without mentioning the word S bomb. Oh, um, where where this is a new record. We? we made it forty minutes in before you said it. <laughs> well, I was just I just yeah. glanced at your chain guard images uh, page of your website, and you actually mention S bombs uh, right up at the top. Minimal hardened right. images signed by Signal that includes S bombs. I'll talk to um, I'll talk to the team and see if we can get that taken out. No. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, though, in all seriousness, though, there's been there's yeah. a lot of energy and ex- and, and excitement and spend out of the U.S. government to evangelize the value of S-bombs. And we, you and I have yeah. talked a lot in the past about like the value. And Are you starting to see CISOs and security programs change things, starting to use the tools, starting to embrace S-bombs, starting to ingest some of this data? Are we moving at all? Not much. Um, not much. It's unfortunate. Uh, the S-bomb space is confusing and complicated and misunderstood constantly. So it's it's still discussed way more than it is used in practice. Um, I do these little completely non-scientific, unofficial Twitter polls and LinkedIn polls every once in a while, and there's a major vulnerability to ask, did anybody use S-bombs yet? Um, and the answer is, it's been roughly flat for the last two years. Uh, they're still not there's there. There's been a lot of movement around, there's been a lot of movement around, like, figuring out the standards, figuring out the exchanges, like, figuring out some of the tooling and some of the... Yeah, some of what will eventually be embedded in the tooling, I'm guessing. Uh, there, there's been there's a lot of hot air, I guess I would call it, um, in the space. There's a lot of vendors trying to sell SBOM solutions. There's a lot of companies trying to figure out if SBOM fits into their strategy. And for the most part, 
they sort of fall down into the same camp of, I guess if the government is going to make us, we'll figure out a way to check that box if we have to. But I'm not seeing a lot of people finding value in SBOMs yet themselves. There's a couple problems with it. Uh, there's this great blog post, which we should link again here too in the show notes, uh, from Point Seventy Two Ventures that talks about their their take on the overall SBOM ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And it's being driven, the, the basic stance there in thesis is that since this is being driven by a regulatory pressure and not an inherent underlying need, it's leading to a lot of short-term solutions that are just designed to check that regulatory box. In this case, the regulatory box doesn't really talk about quality or usefulness. It's just set up as, do you have one or not? Because people are shipping crappy S-bombs just to check the box, no one's getting value out of them, which is causing this like death spiral where you can't build good tools to do anything with the S-bombs because they're not that useful because people ship crappy ones. So it's kind of sucking all of the value out of the space because of the that you know quality issue. If you could somehow kickstart the whole ecosystem around shipping quality S-bombs, then you can imagine this flywheel of like, oh, good S-bombs, good tools produce good insights from that data, which encourages more good tools. But instead, it's spiraling the other way to a bunch of you know crappy Excel spreadsheets that are going to get sent around on email attachments and not really looked at again after that. Yeah. There's there's another example, I guess, we could pull up of all those checkboxes, right? Um, you can look at like some of the NIST frameworks. The NIST frameworks are a long document with like 800 checkboxes. And it's like, yeah, do you have antivirus? Uh, do you have endpoint protection? Do you have a firewall? Do you rotate passwords? You know, Do you rotate keys? Are your keys long enough? Uh, are you using an approved encryption algorithm? And those aren't useless, right? People do those checks, they find things, they, they improve the standards. And then if you a breach happens and you check that box and you publish a document to the government saying we do all of these things and a breach happens and it finds out you lied on that box, now that's a false statement made either to your shareholders and that's an SEC violation like we just saw with SolarWinds or to the government, which is covered under the False Statements Act. Yeah, so CISOs, CISOs are starting to see right. themselves personally being held yeah. responsible for that and there's a lot of nervousness around that. But here's, my, here's the point around this is, is and you mentioned it there, yeah. Uh, compliance is not security, but compliance is a contributor. It's a significant contributor. Are, are we expecting S-bombs and some of the compliance demands around S-bombs, not necessarily to solve security or supply chain issues, but contributing in some small way like the, the compliance did for traditional security? Right. Compliance is not security. Compliance is a great way for security teams to get budget, though. Right? That's how I look at Correct. it. Um, S-bombs are going to fall into that where like, they're not really going to provide much value on their own. It's my prediction, unfortunately, uh, but it's going to be one of the 800 checkboxes on that form. You're going to have to have them. Uh, maybe you'll be able to repurpose some of that budget you use to check that box for something useful, but I don't think it's going to be in the SBOM itself, unfortunately. So your dad, your dad. Yeah, there's one very specific use case of SBOMs I like, and it doesn't surprise me that the U.S. government is pushing them because they're the number one you know, consumer of software in this form. But, but it's for on-prem software. It's for on-prem software is the one I like, where if you buy software from a vendor and they give it to you to download and you run that on your own infrastructure behind your own firewalls and a security you know, patch comes out to one of those embedded components, the vendor might not even know you're still running it, right? It's it's behind your walls. They, they can't contact you and tell you about it. The best they can do is make a patch available. And SBOM lets you be more proactive to monitor for those updates to make sure that you're applying them. So in that case, if that vendor gives you a good and accurate SBOM, you can be proactive on your own vulnerability management. Uh, but that's one niche case where you know, telling everyone they have to start collecting them for everything uh, doesn't really help out. Does it help a CISO figure out his licensing responsibilities? That's been solved for years. There's software component analysis tools and other frameworks to make sure that you're complying with, you know, open source licensing. 
vendors like Oracle know how to find out if you're complying with proprietary licensing, right? That's a solved problem. It, it, I, I struggle with this, and, I'm, and yeah. you might notice my struggle with this, is on one side, you have the power of the, the power of the US government and its and its purse and its people and its its voice and its share of voice evangelizing this thing and on the other side and I, and I have to assume there there are a lot of smart people there there are a lot of people who th- thought through all these issues you and I are discussing and on the on the flip side every time I have a podcast with one of you guys or or someone in the industry who are actually in the trenches they roll their eyes mm-hmm. at the whole idea of s bombs being <laughs> of any value mm-hmm. And as a, as someone as and I'm sure that my audience is sitting there trying to figure out why am I reading about S bombs every freaking yeah. day in, in 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 trade publications mm-hmm. on LinkedIn, when the experts are saying we're wasting our time. Yeah, I, you know, there's a bunch of reasons here, um, depending on how spicy we want to get, right? You know, um, one of the reasons I think it resonates so well in the regulatory circles is uh, because you can explain it to people that don't know anything about computers and about cybersecurity. Um, and so I think, you know, CIS has done an amazing job with that branding. You know, they say, oh, like the Twinkie, you know, the, even a Twinkie comes with an ingredient list. Why shouldn't your software? Um, and you tell that to a cybersecurity expert and they kind of roll their eyes. But if you tell that to an 80-year-old politician, then they probably say, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, I can't believe we've been buying software without ingredient lists. And that's how stuff like this really happens uh, in D.C. And that's how po- uh, policies really make it along. And so from that perspective, I respect it, right? It does add a little bit of value in that one niche case. They managed to convince enough of the actual regulators and politicians to understand it. And so it's a net win if you look at it through that lens uh, of being able to make it easy enough to digest for to get something passed. The downside, though, is it's gotten so over-exaggerated and pulled into so many other use cases that we're getting badass bombs and that kind of quality circle is going to spin around the toilet. Um, when you talk about them, the people supporting it are usually either, and I hate to categorize stuff like this, but I will, I guess. Um, it's either policymakers or people that work at SBOM companies trying to sell tools around it. We leave it right there, Dan. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate the time as usual. Come back again when SBOMs are starting to work. Remind me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much.